And as we finish Mark chapter 8 today, we're going to watch Jesus come to the proverbial end of his rope. He's going to say, I've showed you from chapter 1 that I am God. And all through this book, ever since we started Mark back in October, Mark has set up this tension. He's writing under the superintendency of the Holy Spirit with Peter as his source. And all throughout the story, the tension being managed is this. What are you? What are you going to do with this Jesus? Jesus walks in and he says that he's got power over the Sabbath and the festivals and the customs that the religious leaders were holding up and, and judging the people by. Jesus says, I don't have to follow your man-made rules about the Sabbath because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, your great hero was Abraham. He was the most important person in all of your lineage. Well, I'm greater than Abraham. In fact, before Abraham was, I am. I'm greater than Moses. I am the son of man, the completer of history that the prophet Daniel wrote about. I'm greater than your festivals. I'm greater than your religion. I'm greater than all of your prophets combined because I'm greater than everything. And now with those claims, with those claims, there's tension in the hearts of the people. We either crucify this guy because he's lying to us or we should bow down and worship him because this might be God in the flesh. This might be the one that we've been waiting for. And to back up his claims, he doesn't simply say, just trust me. Just take my word for it. Just follow me. He says, let me show you some miracles. So he's making the deaf to hear. He's making the mute to speak, the blind to see, the lame to walk. He's bringing the dead back to life. He's not just throwing this stuff up, talking big. He's backing it up. And he tells death to stop being dead, and the little girl raises up in front of her parents. He speaks to the raging storms, and they go quiet. What are they to do? If he was some kind of kook who just said, this is what I do, they could write him off. But he's shown that he has power over the physical realm. He casts out demons. He has power over the spiritual realm. And he says, now who am I to you? People even start declaring, some, some, some don't want to believe this. They say, well, you're not God. Yeah, you're, you're just the opposite. Maybe you're just Satan. Yeah, in fact, maybe, maybe you're a demon. Maybe you're from, and Jesus says, wait a minute. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Not an original Abraham Lincoln quote, by the way. Actually, Jesus said it first. And Jesus says, you're going to claim that I'm Satan, but I'm driving out death. Didn't Satan come to bring death? I'm fixing chaos. Didn't Satan come to bring chaos? I'm doing the opposite of what Satan would want. How could you even claim that? But the very people who are most hostile, they have no explanation, so they just want to attribute his works to the devil. They're not denying the miracles. They're not denying that he is doing these things, but they're saying the power behind it is not from God above. It's from Satan. And these things are going to come to a head. Is he a liar? Is he lunatic? Or could he be Lord? There's not really another option given the evidence of his words and his deeds. And so now he says, it's time for you to make a decision. And today we're going to watch Jesus when he stands and when he's going to say, you want to be saved? Here's what it takes. And for some of you, you're going to hear this message and you're going to go, well, we know this. In fact, we call that the gospel. Yes, today we're going to look at the gospel in Mark as Jesus presented it. How to be a follower, a disciple, 
an apprentice of Jesus, how to be a Christian, how to be saved, how to experience eternal life, no matter how you say it, it's all the same there. And it's going to be laid out so plainly, I hope today, that, that everyone that you go, well, maybe before today you didn't know, but today you can't walk out of here saying, I had no idea, or I don't understand. Now, some of you might be going, but, but we've heard this, Walt. I've been in church all my life. We know this. But, but church, may we never grow tired of the gospel of Christ. May we never take for granted the place that we get to be on Sunday morning here at Sky Valley Chapel. If you're bored with that, you might want to check your spiritual pulse. You might really want to lean in this morning. You might say, Spirit, open my heart. As D.L. Moody would say, I would question the salvation of anyone who isn't concerned about the salvation of everyone. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor in Germany, said, when God calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. And today the hope is that with the clarity of the gospel, there will be people sitting even amongst us in here who are listening maybe online on the podcast at some point, and they go, I get it now. I surrender. I die to self so that I can follow Jesus. You see, when Jesus makes his altar call, when Jesus says, okay, it's the time to make a decision, here's what he says, Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 34. It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone, repeat it with me, If anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. The call of Jesus. The call of Jesus to deny self, to pick up our cross, to follow after him. So maybe you're like me. Maybe you, you grew up in, in church and you know this passage. Maybe you learned songs about it. You know, this is Jesus' altar call. You know, the, the church I grew up in, we didn't have altar calls, but later I joined a church that did. But this is Jesus saying, hey, come forth, come to me. He begins by saying, if anyone, if anyone. And the gospel begins with great inclusiveness. Great inclusiveness, and we need to cling to that because really quick, it's going to get very exclusive. That means that regardless of your past, Inclusiveness means regardless of your past, regardless of your nature, anyone, if anyone. Jesus doesn't say if anyone except. He says if anyone. This includes those who would say, well, I can't really be a follower of Christ because I was born a certain way. I have a tendency toward behavior that doesn't conform to the, to the way that God says to live. And I would say, Congratulations. You're like everybody else. You're like all of us. None of us naturally tends toward following God. If you think you do, you're deluded. We are born with a bent for rebellion against God. The call of Christ is anyone, if anyone would come, but they must deny themselves. No matter what proclivity you or I have towards sin, the Bible says if it doesn't align with God's perfect and holy will, 
We are called to put those things to death. We are called to surrender those things to Christ. That's the call of the gospel, if anyone. It doesn't matter what you are, it doesn't matter who you are, as long as you're willing to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, deny self. Now what we find in the very pages of Scripture is that God has spoken, and His Word is true. And I follow these things, and the more I follow them, the more I go, wow, I, 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 didn't, I didn't think that would work. Love your enemies? You know, I don't naturally love my enemies, do you? Maybe you do walking in Christ, but I don't naturally want to love my enemies. Dang, that's working well. Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Submit to one another out of godly love. I don't like to submit in my natural self. Like you, I want my way. And we find these principles of Scripture, and we go, man, God is good. Man, God is good. Man, God is good. This, this is helpful in life. And it would be ludicrous, it seems to me, to come to one part of Scripture and go, well, that doesn't make sense to me, and, and I don't really like that part, so, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to justify it however I want to. Folks, this is Scripture. This is God's holy word. And the day that you and I make our own universe, we can write whatever rules we want to. But you're not going to do that. You're not going to make a universe because you're not God and neither am I. None of us are perfect. In fact, it says we were born in sin. We were born in iniquity. God made Adam and Eve perfect, but they made a choice. They made a choice to rebel against God. They made a choice to, to do what they wanted to do. They made a choice to listen to the voice, the voice of failure, the voice of untruth. They chose to listen to that voice that said, well, God doesn't really love you. God's holding out on you. You know what? You do this, and you can be like God. Then you can be the arbiter of what's true. You can be the arbiter of what's false. You can make decisions about the world. That was the basic lie of the serpent, the basic lie of Satan, is that we could be God. We could be the ones who decide what's true or what's not. And what happened is the fall came, and we became enemies of God. And the Bible never says just do things the way you were born. Just be your natural self. Anyone that has been around toddlers for very long knows that you don't have to teach toddlers to be self-centered, do you? You know, hang around preschoolers, and, and I don't need to convince you that we are born in sin. We've seen it. You know, they can be tiny little tyrants. Not my grandkids, though, okay? They're, they're exceptions to the rule. Just kidding. These kids are tiny little autonomous beings. They're, they're tiny little versions of, of us. And when we get older, we do the same thing. We just use different phrases. When, when we're a kid, we say, it's mine, 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 mine. You hear that a lot when, when you have around little kids? It's mine, 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 mine. We grow up and we use different language. We say, oh, well, you know, you understand. It's, it's my body. It's my choice. This is the way I live my life. I mean, after, after all, it's, it's America. I can do whatever I want to do. Or America's favorite excuse, no one is perfect. You say, no one is perfect? Have you read the book? Someone was perfect. And if no one was perfect, we would have no issue. If truly no one was perfect, if there were no one ever perfect, then we would all be doomed to hell, and it wouldn't make a difference. We could just live however we wanted to. But the fact is, there was someone perfect. And that perfect someone was Jesus. And that perfect someone is the creator of the universe. And that perfect someone has a perfect standard for those who are going to experience eternal life with him. And that perfect standard is himself. So when you go, no one's perfect, you can't just 
shrug and go, well, so, you know, I guess he's going to grade on a curve. Jesus doesn't grade on a curve. When you say no one's perfect, you better get perfection some way. Because the only people who get to heaven are perfect people who have no sin on the record. Which means you can either never sin, which is impossible, or you need to have righteousness imputed to you. You need your sins forgiven by the perfect one, by Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, apart from Christ, we are all guilty. Every day, we make it worse and worse and worse. In fact, God says in the scripture, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. It takes that, that humility, that, that surrender of confessing. Confess means to agree with, of agreeing with God that we're sinners in need of grace, the grace provided by his son on the cross. So the standard is not, well, no one's perfect. The standard is someone was, and that standard is Jesus. And our goal is, and how do I look like the perfect one? How can I have the same record as the perfect one? Because only perfect people experience God's kingdom forever. So we either have to try to do it on our, on our own, try to save our own life, as I said, is impossible. Do we try to fix our life, or, or, or we're going to have to find someone to take our place? We need someone who was and is perfect to experience the opposite of hell, which is heaven. We need someone who was and is perfect to, to be the good judge that says, you trusted me, you faithed me, now here's my righteousness. This is what the Father will look at when he sees you. And that is exactly what happened on a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. At the sunrise service, Bruce sang a great song. I asked him to sing it on Easter. It's called The Great Exchange. And I love the song. I love the message of that song. I love the guy that, that wrote it and sings it too, though. But I, 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 I enjoy you to look it up online or something, or, or go to our, it's, it'll be on our uh, Sky Valley Facebook page, him singing it. The Great Exchange. We exchanged our rags for his righteousness. God validated those claims that Jesus made. He validated those claims of who Jesus said he was by raising him from the dead on the third day so that we might have the opportunity for the great exchange. And this is the gospel. If anyone, regardless of their past, regardless of your nature, whatever it is, if anyone would what? Would come after me. That means follow me. It means be in a relationship with the Father the way I'm in a relationship with the Father. This is going to talk about eternal life here. If anyone is going to experience eternal life, if anyone's going to experience heaven, this is as simple as it is. If anyone would, would denotes that, that someone has a desire, someone has a, has a want. If anyone wants, if anyone wishes, if anyone wants to go to heaven, if anyone would gain eternal life, and Jesus defines eternal life in John chapter 17 where he says eternal life is to know the Father and to experience life in the Father. And the way that Jesus experienced that life in the Father is available to us if we are in Christ. So eternal life is a, is a destination. It's heaven, but it's also a here and now. It's, it's right now that's available. We can experience eternal life here by knowing Christ. If anyone wants to go to heaven, if anyone wants to experience or gain eternal life in Jesus, they must. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like that word, okay? When someone tells me I must do something, immediately I'm like, well, why? According to who? Why do I have to do it? 
We don't like must. Must is a requirement. It's not an elective. It's not extra credit. You know, some people, they come into the Christian life and they think, well, you know, there's, there's JV Christians and there's a varsity Christians and there's a superhero athlete Christians, and that's not true. There's just Christians, okay? There's just Christians. The, the bar is the same for everybody. We must deny ourselves. Some people say, oh, no, 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 well, you, you, you can't do anything. You can't do anything to merit salvation. You're right. We can't do anything. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves, not by works, so that no man or woman can boast about it. And some would say, well, you can't say that someone needs to do something because then, it, then it's going to be faith plus works. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about saving faith. James talks about it in his book. He says that if you have the gospel, if you have saving faith, then your works are going to show forth. It's going to come out in your life as you live your life. Saving faith is living life in Christ so that the good works happen because that's what God created us for, was to do good works when we're in Christ. Any good works that we do apart from Christ, again, it's wood, it's hay, it's stubble, it's filthy rags. So the question is, do I have to surrender my life to him plus do good works? No. It's surrendering life to him fully, which will result in the good works. Our faith will show forth in the deeds that we do that look like Jesus. Let me reference something C.S. Lewis said in, in Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, I encourage you to. It's not, it's not that long. It's a great summation of what Christian, Christian faith is. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, imagine yourself living as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and, and you're not at all surprised about that. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and that does not seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. The Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And if we're saved, we are his living house. We're his domicile. And you may say, oh, well, neat, that's neat. You know, I'll just put a little wallpaper there. And could you check the portico out here? And, and, and you know, could you I think there's a leak over here. And all of a sudden you hear this jackhammer. This jackhammer. I can't make a jackhammer sound up here. You hear this jackhammer. It's like, what the heck is that? And he's breaking the very foundation of who you are. He's getting at your core. And, and he's saying, hey, we got to change this. We're going to add a new wing over here. This is going to be turned into a courtyard. And you're like, well, I just wanted the wallpaper. I just want a little, bit, little cosmetic of facelift here. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building something quite different from the house that you thought you were. And this is what it is. It's not faith plus works. It's that the only faith that saves is one that says, I'm all in. I deny myself. You have the whole house, Lord. If anyone would come after me, wants to go to heaven, if anyone wants to experience or gain eternal life in Jesus, they must deny self. They must deny self. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's threefold. The first is it means we must repent of our sin. The repent is the, is the Greek word metanoa. 
It means a changing of the mind. The best way I've, I've ever heard ex- illustrating it, I like this as a military guy, it's like doing an about face. You know, you're going along in life, it's a to the rear march, turning around and going the opposite way. That's what the Greek word portends to you. It means that the way we were born, we turn away from that. The way that we naturally have are bent for sin, we turn away from that. And God in his loving and his fatherly care for us says, please turn around. Don't keep going that way. Turn around. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. But yet every good and perfect gift that we have comes down from the Father of lights who doesn't change, which means that the, the world we experience here, which we get here, we are constantly basking in the grace of God, whether we know it or not, whether we're a believer or not, the good that we experience in this world is God's common grace that we experience. But imagine a place where every single good thing is stripped away. That's when you're going to know what it means to not have God around, and that's called hell, separation from God. God says, I don't want you to go there. I want you to do a flip turn. I want you to be, do a U-turn on the highway to hell. I want you to repent from sin. Secondly, it means that we reject the indulgence of the flesh. Denying self means we reject the indulgence of our flesh. Stop asking yourself every day, what do I want to do? What should I do? What will make me better? What are my desires? Instead, shift and say, God, what do you want me to do? Where do I need to change? Who do I need to speak with God? How should I live out my life in light of whose I am? God, help me to be who you've called me to be, not what my parents think I should be, not what my my teachers think I should be, not what my grandkids want me to be. What do you want me to be? And number three, denying self means relinquishing your role as king or queen of your life. Give up the crown. Because let's be honest, we're not very good kings and queens. You can make a lot of money, you can have a lot of friends, you can have the wards and and all the accolades of man, but Jesus says at the end of the day, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world, including friends, family, fortune, whatever it might be, and yet forfeit your soul? You're the king of your life, maybe for 80, maybe 90 years, and then you're going to spend eternity separated from God? That's not, that's not really a net win as far as I'm concerned. Scripture says that's a terrible trade. If anyone, regardless of their sins, regardless of their past or their nature, wants to go to heaven, they must, not an elective, they must deny themselves and repent, reject the nature of the flesh, relinquish their role as king or queen of their life, and then take up their cross. Take up their cross. Now, the cross to us is a religious symbol. You know, we put them in our, in our chapels, in our, in our churches. We wear them around our necks. Some of us tattoo crosses on our bodies. For us, it's a religious symbol. But in Jesus' day and age, it was a symbol of execution. It was a symbol of torture. It'd be like our electric chair, our lethal injection, a lethal injection syringe. Jesus is basically saying, take up, he's not saying take up a religious symbol. He's saying, take up the instrument of execution. Take that upon yourself if you're ready to follow me. And that's some harsh language. He said, it's like, you might die for this. But the Christian says, whatever. I serve the one who's overcome death. You're going to threaten me with death? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21 said, For to me, to live is Christ. To die? That's a gain. That's better. In other words, you you let me live? I'll preach about Jesus. You put me in prison? I'll convert your guards. You kill me? 
I'll go see Jesus. The physical realm has no power over the believer, to which Jesus responds, do not fear man who can murder your body, but fear God who can extinguish your soul. If anyone, regardless of anything, would come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross. Now, what does this mean, take up my cross? You know, does it mean I just go around, you know, walk around the country carrying a cross on my back or something like that? Uh, and what does it mean? It means, basically, it means all my whole life, my entire life is a sacrifice, is an, is an offering. Romans 12 says that in view of what God has done, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, you've probably heard before, the, what's the problem with a living sacrifice? It can crawl off the altar, okay? Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. So he calls us to sacrifice to surrender ourselves for him. He's the initiator, the founder, the finisher of our faith. And so in view of the cross, in view of our adoption, in view of our regeneration, in view of our conversion, in view of our salvation, in view of everything that Christ has done for us, it is his victory. And if we truly understand what he's done for us, if we truly understand the power of his grace, the love of of this king, we will offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Paul says this is our spiritual act of worship as we're offering ourselves daily. It's a repetitive thing. It's not just a once-in-a-lifetime once thing. It's a repetitive thing, daily offering ourselves, not conforming to the patterns of this world, but being transformed, being changed by the renewing of our mind, by the renewing of our character, by becoming more confirmed to the character of Christ. Being transformed is, transformed is something that happens to you. It's like you place pu- the putty of your life in, in a mold every day. And that mold is either Christ-likeness or it's the world's mold. You find yourself around people and the words and truth, the worship of Christ, you'll become more Christ-like. But if you find yourself in the throes of the world and in secularism and in the hunt and the chase for sex, for safety, for power, for money, you will fall victim to those things. Now, to be sure, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm not talking about a a separatism, totally pulling away from the world, where we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. But when we're in the world, we know whose we are. We know who we are. Our identity is in Christ, not in someone of the world. And your very soul, if you don't recognize who you are, you know, follow who it is, your very soul will be molded to be like the world. And you're going to be foreign to the king. Instead, we ought to be family to the king and foreign to this world because our citizenship is not of this world. Our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. Take up their cross. The question he's asking is, are you all in? Does anyone who picks up a cross plan on having a return trip? Think about it. In Jesus' day, if you were picking up a cross, you knew it was the end. You knew it was over. You didn't plan on having a a return trip. You're going to die. And so he's basically saying there's no turning back from this. You pick up your cross. He's saying this is a final thing. You can't just you know, say, I'm going to walk along for a couple days, and then I'm going to turn back around. No, it's, a, it's an act of finality. A true mark of repentance, a true mark of salvation is you take up your cross and you say, I'm all in. There's no going back. For no one picks up a cross expecting to be crucified and saying, I'll be right back. Except for Jesus. He did. They didn't understand him. We've been talking about this for the past uh, few weeks as we've been going through Mark's gospel. Peter and the boys and the folks there in the, in the entourage, they didn't understand it. Even after Peter made that great confession of faith last week or the week before, immediately when Jesus talks about suffering, when Jesus talks about dying, about going to the cross, what did Peter do? He rebuked Jesus. 
He rebuked him. But we're called to be crucified with Christ. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. That's the mark of repentance, saying, I'm all in, God. I'm all in. Everything I have is yours. It's a conviction that, that transforms us. It's not just a, a belief that agrees. When we say we believe in God, it's not just intellectual assent to theism. Theism has never saved anyone. Only Christianity, only Jesus saves. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. We only come to the Father through him. To intellectually assent or agree that God exists doesn't save you. In fact, that argument would be making you to have the same type of faith that the demons do. The demons believe in God. They believe in Jesus, but they don't surrender to Jesus. Imagine getting to heaven and getting to meet God face to face and, and him say, well, why should I let you? And say, well, um, I, I believe in you. Yeah, I've got an intellectual assent. And he says, well, what did you do with my son? Did you follow my son? Did you surrender to my son? And you said, no, but I have the, I have the faith like, like those demons over there. You know, may I come in? Not. It's not just intellectual assent. It's a conviction that changes us. It's saying, I put all of my hope in you. I'm not my own. I'm yours. I find my identity, my foundation in you. I take up my cross. It's, it's a transforming conviction. It's not just agreeing belief. And with that is going to come true evangelism that will produce persecution. Evangelism is a word that kind of scares some of us off sometimes. Why do I have the gift of evangelism? Well, I'm not talking about being Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham had the gift of evangelism. There's others, Luis Palau, people like that have the gift of evangelism. But every believer, everyone who's a Christ follower is, is called to share their faith. It may not be in the dramatic ways that those gents that I just mentioned do. We're called to do it. To take up your cross means that you're telling others. You're thinking, you're thinking like in Jesus' day and age, if Jesus was going to be crucified, what would it have meant to take up your cross? You would be identifying with the traitor. So when you pick up your cross, like he picked up his cross, the world's going to say, oh, you align yourself with that absolute truth guy, huh? You, you, you align yourself with that exclusive belief system. Well, yeah, it does end up exclusive. But remember, it starts off inclusive. Whoever, if anyone, anyone has the ability to come to Christ. It gets exclusive later because Christ is the only way. You can't say, oh, I come to Christ, but I'm also going to believe in Buddha, and I'm going to believe in Vishnu, and all these other, other things, and by the way, I'm going to believe myself. No, the Christian belief is extremely inclusive and remarkably exclusive. For anyone can come, but they must believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. They must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Can anyone deny themselves and do this? Yes. It's available to anybody. That's why it's inclusive. But it's exclusive because there's no other faith that will save you. No other belief system. No works can save you. You know, I've had people say, well, I'll come to Jesus when I get good enough. I say, that's a fool's errand. You'll never get good enough to come to Christ. He says, just as you are. He'll take you just as you are. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And, and, what, and what that means is we, if we really truly have been saved by grace through faith, then we will, as a natural byproduct, want to let other people know about what's happened. So people go, you know, well, you know what? I, don't, I really don't agree with that. I, don't, I really don't experience persecution in my life. I don't want to experience persecution in my life. Well, that's you. Let me challenge you, and, and let me challenge myself, too, that perhaps our lack of persecution, if we aren't being persecuted, is directly tied to our lack of evangelism. 
You see, evangelism basically means inviting others to know the king, to know who should be our best friend. It means bringing people to church. It means bringing people to chapel. It means moving conversations with our, with our friends and with those that we rub elbows with into spiritual matters. It means asking the difficult questions, but doing so in a winsome way, in an attractive way. And with that will probably come some persecution. So maybe our lack of persecution bespeaks a lack of evangelism in our life. We have to be, those of us that are already Christ followers, we have to be people that invite, who invite others to know the most important person that ever walked this earth, the most important person in our lives. And may we be people who invite others to Christ. But persecution is not an excuse for being a jerk. I've seen Christians that are jerks, and they persecute, and they, they, they say, oh, well, see this? You know, if, if you go to work every day, and you say, I experienced persecution at work, but you're walking around, you're saying, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you don't believe like I do, you don't go to my church, you don't worship the way that I do, your co-worker's going to go, wow, we don't like him. We don't want to hang out with him. He's not going to, your boss can say, he's not going to get the promotion that he wants. You can't turn around and go, oh my gosh, that's persecution, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, you're being persecuted because you're a jerk. You may think it's because you're faithless, because you're a jerk. You can't steal something and get fired for it and say, oh, now I know how Paul felt. You can't kill somebody and go to jail and say, oh, ah, my, now, I, now I identify with Christ being in, cha- in chains. No, you broke the law. You broke God's law, you broke man's law. Persecution is when we, through the love of Christ and what has been done for us and through us, because of what Christ has done on the cross, we want others to know him, so we lovingly and humbly and judiciously call people to know the Christ that we know. And again, we do so in a winsome way. Jesus says, they're going to hate you. They hated me, they're really going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But evangelism, even in the face of persecution, should be a constant in our lives. I want people to know who I know because I want them to be where I am. If anyone would come after me, wants to go to heaven, if anyone wants to experience or gain eternal life in Jesus, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Follow me is threefold here. It means doing the things that Jesus did. It means becoming more like him every day. And, and then we find ourselves where Jesus is. If we've, been, if we've been saved by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We've got this renovation crew in our life. The Holy Spirit moves in and, and takes residence in our heart, and we, we change. Do we still mess up? Yes. Do we sin every day? You betcha. But what you'll find is a slow and methodical movement to where we are more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is the big word. It basically means becoming more like Jesus. It's an absolutely necessary byproduct of accepting him as your Lord and Savior. Doing the things that Jesus does, becoming more like him, you'll find yourself where Jesus is. We find ourselves being around Jesus people, having Jesus conversations, being around people that don't know Jesus, and introducing them to Jesus. We're making provision for the Spirit, as the Spirit leads us and guides us and directs us. Jesus says in verse 35, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. If you insist on living life your way, I think of the, the, the song that uh, Paul Anker wrote for Frank Sinatra, My Way. It's a great song, Poor Theology. If you insist on living life your way, apart from God, in the end, 
you will lose it. That's not me that says it. That's Jesus that says that. If you don't like it, take it up with him. But if you're willing to lose your life, to surrender your life to him, you might experience suffering. You might experience persecution. You might even experience rejection and shame. You might even experience death as a result. But he is the one who conquered death and the grave. That's what Easter celebration is all about. That's why we're here this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. And he says, whoever chooses in this life to surrender to my lordship, you will experience eternal life forever in heaven. So the question, the challenge question, I leave you on the life notes at the bottom there this morning is, is simple. It's have you responded to the invitation of Jesus? This is the gospel in a nutshell. The words from the master himself. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that word Lord means that it's not just lip service as we talked about last week. It, it means that he's king. It means that you've surrendered to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, was crucified on a cross, and that he did it for your salvation, and when he was crucified, he was buried, and he took the, he took the curse of your sins with him to the grave, but then he rose again in newness of life, proving that God has the ability to make dead things live. If you identify with that resurrection, you can be saved. It's that simple. God, you're the ruler of my life. I believe that your work on the cross and your resurrection paid for the price of my sins. If you've never done that, why not today? Why not today? If you want to do that, if you're, you've sat there and you're convicted by the, by the words that are here, the words not of Walt, but the words of the Lord, let those words sink into your spirit and let one of us up here on stage know about it before you leave here today. It's that simple. You will be saved. That is the gospel. What a story.